I'd mentioned we're going to be doing a study through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you're familiar with Genesis in chapter 12, uh, we begin the account of Abraham and God's calling there. The first 11 chapters are many ways laying the groundwork for that, but they also laid the groundwork for a lot of what the scripture talks about. Uh, that there's a lot of foundational truths found in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that's probably why many people who have tried to undermine and attack Christianity attack the teaching and the, the scriptures found in these first 11 chapters. Unfortunately, you have Christians who are trying in some way to, to win people to, to salvation, to try to convince them to believe in Jesus, that they begin to, to chip away and begin to compromise on the issues found in these first several chapters. And in so doing, begin to undermine Christianity itself. Because when you start to weaken the foundation, you really weaken the whole structure. And so Lord willing, we'll be looking at these 11 chapters in the coming weeks and thinking through many foundational truths that God uh, is teaching us that are important for us to understand the rest of Scripture, understand who God is. This evening, we're going to start with just the very first verse, chapter 1 and verse 1. Before we we delve into that verse, I want to to frame what we're going to be doing in some ways uh, in studying through these 11 chapters and thinking about the issue of worldview. Uh, how many of you ever heard the that word before, worldview? have a sense of what that is. Most of you, it's, it's a word that uh, you've probably heard at some point in time thinking about Christianity or different things. Uh, if you aren't familiar with it, or maybe you know the word, but you're not sure exactly what it means, uh, it's really getting at the fact that uh, all people have a certain understanding of reality. They, they think about the world, they think about uh, the universe in particular ways. Uh, often it's uh, compared to looking through a pair of, of glasses. If you have red-tinted glasses, the world tends to look red. If you have blue-tinted glasses, the world tends to look blue. And so your understanding of the world causes you to think about the things you see in the world in a particular way. And often our worldviews are, are held unconsciously. We don't necessarily think intentionally, this is what I'm going to believe about this issue. We just tend to begin to believe it. Maybe we've adopted it from other people and we begin to, to form that into our understanding of the world. And as well, our worldviews are often held inconsistently. That some parts of our worldview might match up with a particular understanding and other parts a different understanding. As Christians, what we want is we want our worldview to reflect God's worldview. We want our worldview to match up with the scripture, which means we want to consciously and as much as we can consistently adopt what God has said about reality. And there's several people who have written about these things. One person who's written quite a bit on this is a man named James Sire. In a book he wrote called Naming the Elephant, he talks about seven kinds of questions that worldviews tend to answer. I'm going to read these questions to you. You don't have to remember them. There's no quiz at the end. I just want to read them to you so you at least know what these questions are. And because as we think through these questions, what we actually find is a lot of them begin to get answered in the very first verse of Genesis. So what are the questions that, that worldviews often tend to answer? Uh, what is prime reality? What, what was here first? What, what was here before everything else was here? What is the nature 
of the world around us? Is the world autonomous? Is it chaotic? Is it ordered? Is it created? Um, uh, is the world material? Is it immaterial? Is it some kind of uh, combination of both? What does it mean to be human? Are we animals? Are we machines? Uh, are, are we uh, persons? Are we gods? What does it mean to be human? What happens at death? Do we cease to exist? Are we reincarnated and come back in, in another life form? Are we, do we enter some kind of shadowy existence? Are we transformed? What happens at death? Why is it possible to know anything at all? Is it possible to know anything at all? How do we tell what is right and what is wrong? And what is history about? And I think five of those questions are either answered or begin to be answered in the very first verse of Genesis chapter one. We, we find out answers to the questions like, what is the first exist reality? What is prime reality? What is the nature of the world around us? Why is it possible to know anything at all? How do we tell what is right and wrong? And what is history about? All begin to be answered in this very first verse of Genesis chapter one. So let's look at this verse together. Genesis one and verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to take just a little bit of time to, to make sure that we understand what the verse is saying. Then I want to take some time to think about what it tells us about God and the world. So first, what is it talking about? Well, that very first phrase, in the beginning. Uh, that's how probably most of your translations translate this verse. Uh, and so you may have never thought about it any other way. Um, and I don't think you need to think about it anyway, but in case you have heard this or do encounter this, uh, some people say we actually should translate that when God began to create and really tying it in with what's coming afterwards. When he began to create, the world was chaotic. And so then he began to form and shape things. In that kind of understanding, it basically is saying we have a kind of chaotic world and God comes in and begins to form it. But I don't think that's what's happening here in Genesis 1. I don't think the language really points that way. I think certainly the rest of Scripture and the theological emphasis we see throughout, this is basically saying in the beginning. Not just when God began to create, but at the beginning of time itself. At the very beginning of time itself, God did something. God created the heavens and the earth. And that word created is a word that, again, you may have heard people talk about this before. It is a Hebrew word that really is only ever used in this form in talking about God. God's the only one who creates in this kind of a way. Now, because of that, some people have said this word literally means creates out of nothing. That's what the word itself means. I don't think the word means that necessarily. Uh, that word is used sometimes in the Old Testament to talk about creating things from other things. But I think it is the kind of word you would use to talk about creating out of nothing. And it certainly does point to God's unique work in some ways of creating things new and fresh or, or renewing things. And so I think this is essentially saying there's nothing other than God and then he creates. And so here it is a reference to a creation from nothing. There's no material. There's nothing but God. And then he creates 
And what does he create? He creates the heavens and the earth. Now, again, some look at this verse and say, this is kind of a summary. This is the heading for the rest of the chapter. What's this chapter about? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's get into it, verse two. I actually think a better way to understand it is that this is the first step of God's creation. This is his initial act. His initial act is he creates a heaven and earth that, Lord willing, next week we'll look at this more fully. And verse two is described as being, at this point in time, unformed and unfilled. There's a heaven and an earth, but there's nothing really in the heavens. The earth is just kind of a watery mass. And so then he begins to form it and to fill it. But at the very beginning, he creates the, the setting. He creates the place in which all of this is to happen. And so God, at the very beginning of time, calls into existence the heavens and the earth. So what does this tell us about God? I think it's important as we're thinking about a biblical worldview, as we're thinking about asking, how should I view the world? How should I understand reality? And how should I do so in a way that matches up with what God says? That this reminds us, if we're going to think biblically, we have to start where the Bible starts. And that means we have to start with God. We can't start with us. We can't start with the things of this earth. When God essentially says, I want you to know certain truths, the first thing you need to know is God. In the beginning, God. Because you will not understand anything if you don't understand it in relationship to God. That's really in many ways similar to what we saw in the book of Proverbs last year. If you were here for our study in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You can't truly understand anything in this world rightly unless you view it in its proper relationship to God. You have to start with him and then think of everything else in relationship to him. And so what do we find out about God in this verse? And the first thing we find out is that God is eternal. That in the beginning, he's already there. He's always existed. And not only has he always existed, He existed before time existed. Because this is the beginning of time. God creates time. And before time begins, which is a a statement that doesn't even make sense, right? Because how do you have before time? And yet, before time begins, there's God. That he is not part of time. He is not bound by time that he has always existed and always will exist. He is the eternal God. And we'll talk more about this, uh, Lord willing, later this evening, but I just want to initially kind of bring up this, this thought experiment. There are some in our day who would say, you know what, you're kind of crazy if you think God created the world. You're not quite as maybe intelligent, not quite as rational as other people who think otherwise. But most people who have really considered the nature of our world, they've all concluded the world had a beginning. That there was a time when the world was not. And so I I wonder what really seems crazier to you. There's literally nothing. And all of a sudden, 
something just comes into existence. Or there's an eternal God who's existed for all time and he caused everything else. I, I kept thinking in light of this passage, uh, there's a phrase from a musical, um, The Sound of Music, nothing comes from nothing. And really the song isn't about this, but that phrase just kept coming to my mind because it's true. Right? Nothing comes from nothing. If you have nothing, you don't get anything from it. So where did everything come from? It came from someone. It came from God who has existed for all eternity, which leads us then to the next truth we see about God in this text. That God not only is eternal, but God is independent and self-existent. Because you say, where did everything come from? Well, it came from God. Where did God come from? And the answer is, he didn't come from anywhere. He was never caused. Everything else has a cause. Everything else is caused by him. He is caused by nothing. He alone has life in himself. His, his existence does not depend on the world. The world's existence depends on him. He is independent. He alone has life in himself. We are not independent. We and everything else in this world need and depend on him. The third truth we see in many ways is, is, I think, pointed to by just the very word of God, that this is a person who is majestic and reverent, someone who is high and exalted, that this is a great being. And he is, fourth, personal. That some think about God in our day, not as a person, but as kind of a force. You think about Star Wars or, or something like that. You just have this energy, you have this power, just kind of pervades all things. There's a lot of people in the world who they think that's really what ultimately runs everything in this world. It's, it's not a person, it's just a force. But forces don't really create. To create requires intentionality. It requires will. It requires intelligence. And so we find here at the very beginning, the God of creation is a personal being to whom we can relate because he has intelligence and will. A fifth truth that we see is that this, is, this God is a powerful God. Because what kind of person can create the heavens and the earth? An almighty being an incredibly powerful being. Which is why Paul points out in Romans 1, his eternal power and Godhead are clearly seen since the beginning of this world. Since the beginning of creation, these things are clearly seen. He's a powerful God and he is a wise God. I think this is certainly hinted at, but it will be fleshed out much more fully in the coming uh, verses as we see how he does this the incredible wisdom it takes to be able to create the heavens and the earth. And then the final truth we find in this verse is that this God is a self-revealing God. He is not a God who has hidden himself. He is not a God who 
is afraid of having people to see him. But instead, he is a God who wants people to know him. And we know that because he made the heavens and the earth. And we also know that because he gave us this verse. At the very beginning, in the book he gave us, he said, I created the heavens and the earth. I want you to know me. I want you to know what I have done. Which I think that truth about God tied in with the fact that he does not need us helps us to begin to answer a question that maybe you've asked before. Or maybe your children have asked this and you thought, I don't even know how to answer this. Why did God make the world? And let me tell you a very bad answer. Because God was lonely. And God wanted someone to love. Because what does that say? That says God needs us. That God does not need us. God was not lonely. We don't see it from this verse. I think there's hints later in the chapter. Certainly in the rest of Revelation, we find out that, that this God is not just one God, but that he is one God in three persons. And so for all eternity, he has had perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And could have, in many ways, had he chosen to, continued on for all eternity with nothing but the fellowship that he enjoyed within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. So why did he make this world? And at least one answer is, so that we would see his glory. So that his glory would be displayed. That it would be evident through what he has made. And so this is the God we begin to encounter here in this very first verse. And in light of these truths, we already begin to see competing worldviews set to the side. And, and I was trying to think through these. I actually thought of 10 different worldviews that this verse already begins to say, this isn't true. And, and there could be more, I'm not confessing that I've thought of all of them. I want to begin to, to just think through these briefly, to, to begin to see how right from the very beginning, God's beginning to say, no, no, don't believe that. Don't believe that. Don't believe this. So what are some worldviews that this begins to, to push back against? And the first you might be able to think of pretty easily, that's atheism. So what does atheism believe? There's no God. And what does this verse tell us? In the beginning, there's God. He's there. And so atheism is not true. Because in the very beginning, there is a God. And polytheism is not true. Because it's not in the beginning, the gods began to think about what they might do. It's in the beginning, God created. We only have one God. There are no other gods. And as well, this pushes back against views that think there is no difference between the different parts of this world, that everything's ultimately connected. And there's two related worldviews with that, monism and pantheism. And again, there's not a quiz on these. You don't have to remember them all, but if it is helpful. Uh, monism, some people pointed out, the best way to think about it is oneism. Basically, everything ultimately is just one. We're all connected to each other. We think things are different, but really everything's just one. Pantheism is, is also saying, and there's a God, and so therefore everything is God. Everything's one, and because there's a God, everything's ultimately God. And this verse comes along and says, no, no, no. There's a God, 
And then there's the heavens and the earth he created. Now, God is not part of his creation. God is distinct from his creation. Fourthly, it, it pushed it out the idea, uh, the worldview of idealism. Now, idealism is basically the, the, the worldview that everything is just the product of our minds. There actually is no material reality. And yet God creates material reality. He creates the heavens and the earth. And so this world is both matter and spirit. It also denies the worldview of humanism. Because in humanism, what is this world about? Humans. But what is this world about? God. God is at the center, not us. And it also denies naturalism. Naturalism says there's always natural causes. Everything that happens is explained within this world, within this universe. And this verse comes along and says, but God's not part of it. And God caused the beginning of all of it. That Christianity cannot be a naturalistic religion. At its very heart, it is a supernaturalistic religion. That there is a God outside of the created world who does act in this world. It also denies materialism. This material world is not all that there is. There are unseen things. God is a spirit. And he's the cause of this material world. It also denies relativism. Relativism says there is no universal truth. Truth is simply contingent upon us, contingent upon certain groups or peoples. And you hear this verse comes along and says, all the heavens and the earth were created by one God. You can't get much more universal than that truth. God created the heavens and the earth. It also denies skepticism. Skepticism says we can't really ever know anything. And here we have a clear statement. You can know this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then finally, it denies fatalism. Because in fatalism, things all kind of go towards this particular end and, and no one's in charge. It's an impersonal fate. Chance is all that's happening. And yet, behind this universe, they're not fates. It is not chance. It is a person, God. God is behind all of these things. Please me then, finally, to consider what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us and how we should begin to think about this world? How should we begin to live and act in this world? And the first thing it means is that God's the one who gets to define everything for us. This is related to what I said earlier. We have to think of everything in relationship to God because God's the one who tells us what everything is. He made it all. He designed it all. And we don't have the right to come along and, and figure it out on our own. We're trying to think God's thoughts after him. We're trying to say, God, what do you say about this? What do you think about this? What do you say this means? Because, secondly, everything ultimately is responsible to God. God made us. And so the person who comes along and says, don't tell me what to do with my life, it's my life, is not being truthful. Because it's not our life. It's God's. He gave it to us. 
And therefore, we have to answer to him for what we do with our life. Because third, we are defined and dependent on God. We are defined by God because God tells us who we are. Our world comes along and says, you need to, for yourself, determine who you are. You need to determine what your meaning and purpose is in life. You need to determine what is true and what is not true. You need to determine what is right and what is wrong. You need to decide all these things for yourself. And the very beginning we find out, no, we can't do that because there's a God who made all these things. And so our job is to discover what he has already set in place. We don't create these things for ourselves. We submit to what he has set for us. Fourth, because the universe is created, we can expect order and design in the universe. We'll talk about this more, Lord willing, the coming weeks, but the fact that science actually works is because God created the universe. It's not mere happenstance. It's not total randomness. Randomness is not chaotic. It is created and therefore can be studied and we can learn because it was made by a mind. Therefore, we can see truths and design within the universe. Fifth, because the universe had a beginning, we also expect it to have an ending. If there's an in the beginning, and there is, we expect it to be at the end, and there is. The universe is headed somewhere. It's not an endless loop. There's a direction to which the world is going. Sixth, when we understand that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, our immediate response should be, why would I worship the creation rather than the creator? I think in many ways, that's part of why this verse is here for the nation of Israel. They're to look around at the gods around them and to say, but our God made the heavens and earth. Why would we worship these other things? Why would I worship something like the sun instead of the one who made the sun? If you see some incredible piece of art, if, if you read some incredible book or you see, uh, hear an incredible piece of music, someone says, this is the person that wrote that. You don't say, I don't care about that person. You say, Wow. That's incredible that this person could create something like this. And your appreciation for what they've created is meant to go back and give you a greater appreciation for the one who made it. So as we look at this world around us, we should never stop at this world around us. It should always drive us beyond that to say, consider the one who created these things. Consider the one who made these things. And our problem is we don't even worship things as great as the sun. We worship things much less impressive. We live our lives for things like phones and cars and clothes and money. We worship celebrities and musicians and athletes and politicians instead of seeing these all pale in comparison to the one who made the heavens and the earth, the God of the Bible. And because God made all things, God is greater than anything in this universe. Why do you think people worship the sun? 
that's a pretty powerful and perhaps even potentially scary thing. I don't have the power to compete with the sun. You don't have the power to compete with the sun. There's lots of things in this world that I don't have the power to fight back against. There's nothing in this world that God does not have the power to fight back against. He is greater than anything in this universe. So we need not fear this created world because we know the one who made it all. Another truth is because this world does include the supernatural, our prayers really do make a difference. I don't want to get into the politics of it, but perhaps you've seen it within political debate and discourse right now, a kind of disdain for someone who would say our prayers are with you. And they, they look down on this fact and mock and ridicule this idea. And if there's no God, I think they're perfectly right to do so. Because prayers are no more different than saying, I'm thinking happy thoughts and I'm sending them your way. You say, well, what is that going to do for me? I don't know. How is you sending me happy thoughts going to change anything? But if instead I say, you know, the one who made the heavens and the earth has said, I can come and talk to him. And I can ask him to work on my behalf and I can ask him to work on your behalf. That's something. That's something better than anything I could do. And if we really believe that this world does include the supernatural, and we will begin to see the incredible power and privilege that we have with prayer. And finally, I want to highlight three truths that I hope will help us as we begin to study the rest of this uh, passage in Genesis 1 to 11. And the first is that as we come to the Bible, what is the Bible primarily about? God. That this isn't first and foremost, tell me what to do so I can live a happy life. This isn't first and foremost, let me understand myself a little bit better. It's in first and foremost, I need to know God. Understand who he is. I can never really know me unless I know him first. And so as I study this, I'm constantly trying to think, what does this tell me about the God who made the heavens and the earth? Secondly, as we've walked through so many implications from this passage, I've become increasingly convinced of what I saw someone say. If you were to pick the most offensive verse in the Bible to our culture and society, you probably should pick this one. Because in a sense, every other thing that we don't like about what the Bible says flows out of this truth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's in charge. He tells us who we are. He tells us how we're supposed to live. And the moment we come along and say, well, that's too restrictive. I'm not sure I like that. We're basically coming back to this truth again. Is God the one who in the beginning made the heavens and the earth? Is he the God of the universe? Is he in charge? If he is, I got to believe everything else he says. And if I'm going to begin to chip away at this, why would I believe anything else he says? 
If I come to the very first phrase and say, oh, I'm not sure about that, but I bet the rest of it's really going to be good. What on earth are we doing? We want to believe what God has said from the very beginning. We need to trust all of God's words from the very first words. Then finally, I hope that as we consider the nature of this God, that it humbles us. This is an eternal God. And we are very time-bound creatures. This is a self-existent God, independent, and yet we depend entirely upon him. This is a powerful God, and we are weak. This is a wise God, and yet we lack wisdom. This is a supernatural God, and yet we are bound by this, by our material world. This is a great, majestic God. And so what this verse should cause us to do is we begin to move to the very next verse. In a sense, we should fall on our knees in humility. Not standing before this text, saying, God convince me. But instead, coming with humility, recognizing, I depend on you. I need you. You are the one who made me. Tell me who I am. Tell me what I should do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to the God who made the heavens and the earth. That in the very beginning, when nothing was here, you were here. And you will be here for all eternity. There is nothing and no one greater than you. So, Father, may we commit ourselves to seeking to know you, to serve you, to strive to have our thoughts constrained by your thoughts, to view this world as you would have us view it. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.